This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. It's just wonderful to look on a sea of faces, all of whom I hope are lovers of art and interested in ideas. That's the only two qualifications for being here tonight. Can art be taught to the Facebook generation? Well, depends who the Facebook generation is. I'm on Facebook. (laughs) Am I included? Depends what art is. Does it mean are you being taught to paint, to make, or are you being taught to appreciate and to read and to visit? What does this mean? So even within that sentence, there are many things to be argued about, which we shall be doing this evening. Um, I'm going to ask our first speaker to be Anthony Gormley, if only because he's been busy with the fourth plinth today. But of course, um, he's doing that because of his whole um, aesthetic and his commitment to bringing people in and giving people, I don't want to misrepresent him, um, but he, he, re- he reaches out, does he not, to absolutely everyone. Turner Prize winner in 1994, creator of Angel of the North, Event Horizon, Another Place, which is out in Formby in Lancashire with all the figures on the shore, Field, that piece of work with thousands and thousands of little um, figures, set up in many different parts. I saw it in the British Museum, um, and it's been in many other places too. So it's for him to speak about whether art can be taught to the Facebook generation. Anthony. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Joan. And thank you all for coming. I think this is a good question, can art be taught? And I I, I mean, I think it's a bigger question. Can, Can art be taught at all, whether or not it's the Facebook generation or any generation? Um, so far as I'm concerned, the, the places in which art can be made have to be protected, fought for, and supported um, by us all. So far as I'm concerned, art offers a first-hand experience of, in a way, being alive. It is the direct transmission of one person's thought and feeling through material to another. And as such, it is an absolute resistance to the way in which information and visual imagery is so easily and facilely transmitted in our day and age. And I think that's really the background of this question. To what extent has our deeper engagement with the visual been diluted by the fact that we live in a time, we could say this is the visual time, in which we are bombarded by 
visual imagery that is in some sense mechanically produced and mechanically traduced, but art gives us an opportunity to go back to experiencing something that has been made and something that has been, in a way, transmitted materially. So it's a form of resistance to, in a sense, the immediate redundancy of so much of the imagery that we deal with every day. Um, I just want to say something about the, the way that I have discovered, in, in a sense, a, a new paradigm. I think there is a real hunger today, not perhaps for an old idea of art as the result of privileged patronage and a great deal of money, but the possibility of art not as an object at all, but as a space, a space of possibility, a space in which, in a way, human being can examine its own nature. And that's, I think, what, for me, one and other, the fourth plinth is all about. It's about taking something that was made in the middle of the 19th century for a king, William IV, the son of George IV, and using this old bit of Victorian street furniture to really examine, in a, in a sense, another idea of making a picture. This is not the kind of picture of mythological scenes that you might find inside the National Gallery. It's not even the portrait of, in a, in a way, a national hero. Trafalgar Square is filled with male national heroes that are all military. It's about us now. It's a living monument that is asking about our futures, not recording our past. It's not about a defensive notion of nationalism, but it's an open question as to what it means to live in the UK now. None of this could happen without the extraordinary yearning for participation. The fact that people, five and a half million people, go to the Tate every year, Tate Modern, is just a very powerful argument for the fact that people enjoy the space that art gives. Now, so far as I'm concerned, there's something very weird that happens to us when we go to school. You give a six-year-old a piece of paper and a pencil and they, they go for it, they draw. Sometime, kind of between 10 and 14, somehow uh, that confidence of being able to translate thought and feeling into an image is somehow complicated and we begin to self-edit. And all I know is that visual literacy or the comfortableness with expressing yourself visually needs to be supported at all levels. It was only two or three years ago that a survey was done and we spend £1.65 per year on art materials in state schools in Britain. I don't know if that's changed. But the fact is that I think that we need encouragement. I wouldn't be here today if I, didn't win, uh, you know, if I hadn't won a prize at school. It was a, a small sign of support. I think that, in a, in, in a sense... Uh, the visual is as important as the verbal, as the mathematical, as a, a form of expressing our humanity. And uh, anyway, in view of this uh, motion, I simply propose that all forms of expression at all ages that lead to visual literacy should be encouraged. Thank you.
Alain de Botton, who is an author of a series of most beguiling books which take an oblique look at life. They include Essays on Love, The Romantic Movement, Kiss and Tell, How Proofs Change Your Life. Believe you me, he can. I believed it when I read it. I don't know whether he has or not, but wonderful book. The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work is his latest book. And he is the co-founder of the School of Life, which offers ideas for everyday living through the web. I don't know whether it has any reality to it, or is it entirely the web? Well, you must tell us about that too. Alain. Thank you. Well, like Anthony, I'm also uh, uh, here to uh, suggest that art can be taught uh, to uh, the Facebook generation. Um, there's two questions here, I think, lurking uh, in that motion. The first one is, uh, what is a generation, and how should we approach sort of generational uh, change? Uh, and then the second one is, what is art? Um, just to tackle the first one, we will, of course, come across differences, but why not start from the assumption that, essentially, uh, uh, we will share in a common humanity rather than the, the other presumption, which is we're all extremely different and uh, we need a translator before approaching somebody under 20. Um, the next question really is, what, um, what is art for? And people very often come into uh, museums and they come away saying that museums are our new churches. And this is something you hear a lot. Museums are the new churches. I think that's an intriguing comment because of the way that it's not really true, but it's onto something. Um, and I think it's onto something because we knew what churches were about. Churches were about conversion to an ideal. And art was part of that attempt to convert people to an ideal. It was part of a, a, a wider a, a movement of, if you like, propaganda, which involved books and prayers and songs and gatherings, uh, but also involved uh, architecture and uh, painting and, and, and uh, sculpture. Um, so the point of art was to fit in to a wide movement of uh, uh, propaganda. Um, we've grown extremely suspicious of the word propaganda. We've grown extremely suspicious of thinking that art is for anything. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, there, were, uh, there were a lot of artists who argued uh, that the point of art was simply art itself, that art should not hitch itself onto any bandwagons, etc. I think that's often been misinterpreted uh, as suggesting that the point of art is utterly mysterious uh, and perhaps beyond discussion, uh, and that the point and that art is not really trying to do anything. Uh, I think if you speak to most artists, uh, if you look into their souls, I'm take, going out on a limb here, if you look into their souls, they are trying to convert you. Um, not to anything as simple as, you know, Catholicism, not simple, but as it were, ideologically defined, but, it's, but they're, looking, they're looking essentially to drive your emotions into a particular direction. Um, many artists are really interested in truth and goodness. That's what John Ruskin famously thought that art was about, truth and goodness. Sounds terribly strange in a way to modern ears, but the point of art, we should be teaching the Facebook generation about truth and, and, and goodness. Also, someone like John Ruskin would have believed uh, that art has a moral purpose. In other words, that part of what art is trying to do is to make us into better people. All incredibly uh, uh, frightening ideas, ideas that are, that are almost on, the, on, the, on a dangerous, slippery slope down towards something which we might find unpleasant. But I think it's worth hanging on in there, because the richest terrain is definitely on uh, the slippery slopes. So I think that focusing in a little bit more deeply as to what art uh, uh, might be doing... I think one of the things that art is doing is stripping us of habit. Um, it's, a, it's a feature of being around uh, uh, anyone or anything a bit too long, and by anything I include planet Earth, um, that you start not to notice it. Uh, Proust once said that um, uh, the, the best thing to do if you want to uh, no longer uh, uh, see somebody is to marry them. Terribly, <laughs> terribly cruel. Um, 
but uh, uh, essentially <laughs> the idea is when something's been around too long, we can no longer uh, uh, see it. And the point of art... Uh, in Proust's sense, and I think he's absolutely right in this, is to defamiliarize us, to make what we thought we knew unfamiliar, to make us uh, notice what we had seen but not properly uh, attended to. And this is a feature that runs right through art, uh, you know, in, in Antony's uh, uh, event horizon, those figures all over the rooftops of, of London. What did that do? Part of its magic as a project was that it made us notice London. It made us notice the skyline. It made us notice different buildings. We were suddenly attuned and alive. I think it's one of the great things that uh, uh, art does. Um, and art is moving precisely because it reminds us of things of value. You know, sometimes when you see a beautiful work of art, you feel a bit sad. Perhaps I do anyway. But, um, and I think the reason partly why we feel sad is we think, I should have been paying more attention to this sort of thing. This, this work of art has to it an unusual loveliness that I wish was more widely widespread through the world. Um, and we, we're sort of moved by the, the, the kind of rarity of something. So again, a reminder of something valuable that we often lose sight of. Art also tries to make us um, afraid of things that are a bit bad. Uh, there is a satirical side of art um, that tries to draw us away. If you think of uh, a Grayson Perry's Map of an Englishman, it's a critique of many of the things that English people are. Uh, very good-natured, uh, very sarcastic, very biting, very engaging. But essentially, at some moments, it's at least trying to nudge us towards a vision, I think. I'm sure Grayson won't agree, but I think towards a vision of Grayson's uh, uh, idea of what it is to be a good Englishman. Um, and so one thing you could say is that art is trying to rebalance our soul. Let's be really pretentious. Um, but one of the things that we're all in lack of, uh, lacking, is balance. Um, and one of the things that art does is we're drawn towards certain kinds of art that promise to bring us qualities which we don't have enough of in day-to-day uh, -day life. Um, people who loved minimalist art, huge, white, empty canvases full of serenity, uh, I love that sort of art. These people are almost certainly not serene people. They are drawn to serenity precisely because they are not serene enough. They are prone to outbursts of anger. They are prone to uh, losing control of themselves, and that's precisely why this art of wisdom and serenity is so deeply appealing to them, because they don't have enough of it. So trying to get in touch with things which you admire uh, but don't uh, have enough of, trying to re- uh, 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 balance us. So essentially art is there as a therapeutic medium in the best and highest sense as a therapeutic medium and to convert us uh, to what is good uh, and true and our museums of which this is a fine example are ultimately should be uh, modern temples and churches towards a new idea of uh, uh, what is good and noble and this is definitely something that can be transmitted to somebody under 20. Thank you very much. Two people have set the bar very high, haven't they? Entirely different views of what we all share, which is the love of art, but its purpose, it drifts, it changes. Very fascinating. Right, the first, third person we're going to hear is um, Camilla uh, Batman-Gelich. Now, Camilla is the country's foremost advocate for vulnerable children. She's the founder of two children's charities. Well, there are many children's charities, but just let me tell you that the place to be and Kids' Company are outstanding and impressive in anyone's book. They, Camilla has set up a situation in which <clears throat> traumatized children are cared for. However feral, difficult, disturbed, psychotic even, no child is turned away. And what has happened in Kids' Company is truly amazing 
and uh, she won't like me saying this, but it, a lot of it is attributed to her own character as well as the philosophy that she spreads within that company. So what she has to say about teaching art will be worth hearing. Camilla. Thank you. I spent some time wondering about this question, why the Facebook generation? And then I did think, who are we referring to? And therefore, I began interpreting this question in terms of, is there a generation that is somehow choosing computers and technical structures as mediums through which to exercise their personal need for attachment. And if children are choosing Facebook as the space to express themselves in and attach themselves to, is that the problem of the child or is that the problem of the adult and is it a problem? So I will leave all that to the philosophers amongst the the group, but what I did think is where does this need to do art begin? And I think it begins with the intimacies of the child and mother maternal relationship in which initially the mother and child engage in a kind of reverie together where there is a mimicry of each other's states of mind and expressions. And this mimicry, then over a period of time, if it has gone well in the attachment, it cascades into a need for a sense of agency, that the child, after a while, makes a transition from mimicking to trying to have some kind of a construction ability, some kind of a collage of senses, experiences, a kind of recreating of what the mimicry began. And that after that is what happens to children is that sometimes we destroy their natural ability to engage in this cascade of having agency over their experiences, remolding them, restructuring them, reorganizing them. And we attack this incredibly natural ability with something called teaching art. <laughs> and what we're doing is we're enormously pompous, actually, because no one teaches art. What we teach is the ability to use materials and the ability to introduce children to materials. Art is an incredibly spiritual, emotionally driven, profoundly innate desire, need, and expression in us. And nowhere have I seen that more powerfully than amongst the children that, you know, the, the children that we've had the privilege of working with at Kids' Company. And I want to take the next two minutes to tell you in a nutshell why art is so important for these types of children. Basically, I told you about the love and the reflecting and the reverie between a mother and baby. 
And this reverie basically programs the baby's frontal lobe, the child's frontal lobe. And now, because we can so much look into the brain in great detail using our scanning machines, what we're realizing is that the greatest art right under our nose is right behind our eyes, and it emerges from the relationship that a child is engaged in with a carer, that in fact relationships are sculpting our brains constantly. And what they sculpt into our brain is the ability to self-soothe and calm down. So that original love and that original reverie between a mother and baby gives you the repertoire to soothe your own mind, to have a spiritual and aspirational attitude. But what happens to traumatized children is that often there is an absence of that mindful reverie between mother and child because the mother is so preoccupied with her own survival. And catastrophically, that child is dropped out of her mind. Some of these children grow up never being reflected back in a tender attachment and engagement. And in addition to that, many have the disadvantage of banking traumatic memories in the emotional centers of their brain. Day in, day out, the experience of terror stores traumatic memories as if they are now. The dramas of the past, the dramas of childhoods gone wrong, is living alive in the brains of many of these kids. The kids are lacking a compassionate other individual who can sit alongside them and process many of these dramas that are frozen, rigid with terror. It's amazing what a piece of clay or a paintbrush or a piece of drama will do to shift the traumatic memories that are stored. So the first step in terms of using the arts with very traumatized children is to give them the ability to regain that sense of agency that's been lost to them by using the artistic expression, initially, therapeutically, and personally, and then subsequently in the service of reconnecting to the outside world like a father would a child, reconnecting the child that is born of the intimacies of the maternal care to the outside world as a potent agent possible creator of the world that we all inhabit. So what I would say about art is bin the idea of teaching it. You only teach the manipulation of materials. And what you do with art is infinitely greater that, than any discussion could provide a narrative for. However, it's really basic. It's born of that primary attachment and the need to be reflected in some way in the outside world as having meaning and mattering to someone and, and belonging. So my um, answer to the question is don't bother asking it. Okay, thank you. But ask it, we did. 
Right, the next person who is going to put their point of view about can we teach art to the Facebook generation, whoever they are, is Grayson Perry, also known for obvious reasons as Claire, Turner Prize winner in 2003 for his ceramics. He's known for the most gorgeous glittering ceramics, which on first glance appear to ape the classical traditions, which indeed they conjure up, but, um, but the narrative they express and the aesthetic within them is altogether different and of today. Grayson Perry. Right, hello. Um, can we teach art to the Facebook generation? Uh, of course we can. Um, but it is a question that throws up interesting thoughts about... Uh, I, well, I think the thing that I'm thinking about a lot is our relationship to sort of digital culture. Um, maybe the first thing we should agree is that, you know, contemporary art, you know, anything goes in contemporary art, we're all told. I'm always being asked, you know, is it art? And I'm, and I'm really bored of that now. You know, that's a hundred-year-old thing that Duchamp kind of posed to us in many ways. And it's, you know, it's rapidly ossified into a kind of tradition now in art. Um, well, I'm much more interested in what is good, so perhaps we can help students learn to judge what is good, fresh, beautiful, in whatever new form they end up working in. And art schools will continue to produce rare talents, though they're increasingly surrounded by more and more untalented people as art schools rake people in to make more money to fund themselves. And if you ask me what the first thing we should teach in art schools is, it's less people. Um, the Facebook generation can talk, we can talk art, but perhaps not the art that my generation would, you know, consider as the sort of classic, in the classic sense, and rightly so. I mean, I went to art school in 1978, and I went because I liked drawing and making things, and this seems impossibly quaint now, this idea. I was watching a program recently about the moon landings, the 40th anniversary of the moon landings, and those involved saw it as the greatest technological achievement that man had ever happened, you know. But when I think of the most significant technological advance in my lifetime, which included the moon landings, you know, I don't think it's a great big cock going up into the sky with a couple of guys that will then get sort of new age about the earth on it. I think it was the internet. I think it, the internet has been the most, the thing in my lifetime that has the potential to change what it is to be human. And uh, I'm constantly enthralled to it like a lot of people in my generation. I mean, many politicians of my age think it is a panacea that will, will, that will change the health service or the education or the economy. It's a very powerful and sophisticated tool, but it is just that, a tool. And I think people, when they're making art, need to be reminded of it, that it is just a tool. And just because you're able to do it doesn't mean it's interesting or any good. And I think that, you know, often in a technological sense, people are blinded by the amazing things we can do with technology. Um, but what they're doing with it is a bit lame. If you remember that film, Tron. Don't hear it. Um, my daughter's 17, so she, she, I do see her. If we're going to have a sort of definition of a, the, the, the Facebook generation, I think she, is, she's, she was a toddler when the, the internet really started taking off. So she's sort of grown up. With it, and she sort of she is, takes it for granted, like we take electricity for granted. And just as my generation, I suppose, you know, thought you know, the internet's this amazing thing, and the Victorians thought electricity could solve everything, you know. And I think we think like that. But I can remember when my daughter was very young, 
we were in the park and she pointed to a lake and she said, click on that swan. <laughs> and that is the power of the internet. That is the power of it. Because it has this power to really inveigle its way into our minds because we're sitting there on our own quite often and it, and it, and it is grafting itself onto our grey matter. And there's pluses on and minuses about it. I mean, I think... I don't know if it's true. I've been talking to my friends who are kind of uh, educators in the art field, and they seem to think there is this sort of one-click attitude to creativity now, where if something doesn't come up on the first ten hits of Facebook of Google, it doesn't exist. And digital communication encourages a kind of superficiality relationship to the real world, if you know what I mean. Um, I mean, on Facebook, you are either a friend or you're not a friend. There isn't the in-between, like the person you know but you don't really want to have dinner with or the person you'll have the weekend with but you wouldn't necessarily want to marry. You know, there's grades of friendship. The real world is very nuanced and often binary technology, which we've got to remind you it is, it's on or off, hasn't got that. And maybe it will happen, I don't know. Um, I know from bitter experience that the real satisfaction from, you know, making art comes from sort of a long relationship with things, setbacks. And I think that this, this the cyber world that the, our, sort of my daughter and her generation are growing up into, it has this ability to confuse ideas and experiences. So they think that if they understand something, they're somehow appreciating it and living it. It's like we're going to have a whole generation who are brilliant at answering pub quizzes but they may, not, they may struggle with processes that need more long experience and exposure and feedback from, from the other world. Though I was talking to someone recently who was an expert in um, computer art, and he said that you know, often when you go to a computer art conference, people talk about code, like a woodcarver would talk about wood, you know, and, you, and code has knots in it, and it, it feeds back. It's so complex and vast, the information that is available, that it does produce unexpected results. Also, there's this idea now that I, I, I see that, that seems to have seeped into popular consciousness. And I think the turning point for me was when that terrorist was storming the Irish Parliament and he said, oh, it's not a terrorist plot, it's a piece of performance art. And that was a turning point for me in that now in the popular consciousness, anything unusual is art. You know, and that kind of, as an artist, that slightly galls me. Because, yeah, it may be art and you can call it art, but, you know, it's no good. It's not very interesting. Um, mind you, maybe terrorism as art would be quite exciting, I don't know. Um, uh, my objection to the idea, really, of a totally digital culture, which I think, you know, there's this, sort of, again, this sort of fetishization of it now, and sort of Stephen Fry sort of masturbating his Apple phone on television and everything. You know, people are, because it's very Boise as well. Um, is that whatever you do with it, digital culture, basically you're stuck in front of a screen with a mouse. And I use uh, computers myself to, to make things. You know, I've just completed a, a huge tapestry that I uh, partly designed and was you know, programmed and was made by a computer-controlled loom. But there's something that was lacking in it, which is that sort of tactile relationship with materials that is a kind of feedback loop. And the delivery systems often of digital culture, if you sort of digital printers or 
Um, I've used a lot of uh, digital uh, transfers in ceramics. There's a sort of thinness about it as yet. I mean, the delivery systems will get better, but I find myself actually factoring in mistakes in order to make them look a bit human. Because I think that there is... I mean, um, uh, Islamic artists, they often deliberately put in a mistake because only God can be perfect. And I think in another... If you turn that on its head, you put in the mistakes because only humans can make mistakes. And I think that, that um, that's an interesting sort of idea. Um, also, that I think that one of the plus sides of coming out of the sort of digital culture is that there is a hunger. Here we are all today, all these people have come here today um, to a live event. And I think there is a hunger for live events and festivals. And, you know, often there's sort of fashions for kind of like uh, quaint old crafts like knitting and things like that. They do, um, they are, in, I think, partly in response to this idea that people are just sat in front of a screen now because everybody's job now is basically sitting in front of a computer. And I'm often roped in as the sort of poster boy stroke girl of the handmade craft, uh, but I don't fetishise it particularly myself. I mean, I, I, from the very off, one of the things I used to say was, um, give me a microwave kiln, because a lot of potters used to talk about uh, the gifts of the fire, you know, and I always used to think of the gifts my auntie gave me at Christmas. Um, but, you know, I think there are limitations as yet. I mean, I have ho what I'm really sort of pitching here is that the Facebook generation will grow up with computers. I think we're at the very beginning of digital culture, and it will produce things that are, you know, that have a more satisfying end product, I suppose, in the end. Um, I mean, computers, as yet, they don't dip their paintbrush into your cup of tea or the wrong colour, um, and uh, they, don't necessarily, you know, they don't misregister and things like that. You know, the kind of little sort of human quirks that, that I like in art. So I believe that we are at the beginning, and the Facebook generation, of course, they will produce brilliant artists. Um, they might be making art that uh, we can't even imagine as yet because of the power of... Uh, the computer, and uh, I look forward to it. Thank you. Last and by no means least is Stephen Bailey. Stephen Bailey was the founding director of London's Design Museum, but he's much more than that. He's a consultant, a designer, journalist, broadcaster... Uh, with a waspish, waspish tongue, but with wisdom as well. So, Stephen Bailey. Of course, you know, as others have said before me, of course you can teach um, art appreciation and art practice. It seems to me the subsidiary question here is, why exactly would you want to? I mean, some would say, I mean, many people would argue it's an assumption of our culture um, that art appreciation can actually do no harm. Uh, but sometimes I, I actually wonder. Um, you know, there's a notably high level of art appreciation amongst very ugly despots and vulgarians. You know, the art world itself? Um, well, you know, come on, let's be honest. What a terrible collection of backstabbing, me-first, politicking operators there are in, a, in, this, um, in this community. I mean, if the, um, if the appreciation of art has civilizing effects, um, they're not to be found in the commercial art world or in the civic museums and galleries. I mean, I spent... 
I, I spent many years working in the Victoria and Albert Museum, and it, it was a complete undermined, completely undermined my belief in as said, the humanizing effect of beauty. Um, the, peop- the, people who, uh, you know, the people who work in the v and are surrounded by some of the most magnificent things that have ever been made, and they're a more surly, disputatious bunch of individuals you simply couldn't, um, you simply couldn't find. Anyway, but the matter of whether we want to teach the Facebook generation to make art is, I I think, something rather different. There's a very, very interesting theory that the actual act of of drawing helps the the creative process. I met a... It's actually not just a description. It's actually... There's something to do with the the way the architecture of the brain, which the drawing helps ideas, you know, follow follow one another. I met a landscape architect the other day who said he was absolutely convinced that um, teaching people to draw um, could help improve their golf... Um, I'm serious. But anyway, still, this is not the same as the actual business of, of this, this question of the debate tonight, the discussion tonight of what it means to teach art. Teaching art suggests to me a very archaic um, set of values. Teaching art was what the old academies did. They didn't do it the Facebook generation. They did it, of course, to the Gutenberg um, generation. And these academies were something which flourished throughout Europe in the, you know, the, in the pre-industrial age. Between 1720 and 1740, academies were open from Toulouse uh, to St. Petersburg and everywhere in between. By the end of the 18th century, there are 100 academies teaching art how to draw, how to, um, how to paint to the Gutenberg generation. And what they actually taught, let's remember, was a set of stultifying rituals based on the classical ideal. Our own industrial age, which followed that, um, was all, had an altogether different set of values. And very interesting, in the 19th century, early 19th century, German pedagogues, including Froebel, the man who inherited the blocks and Pestalozzi and the, the kindergarten founders arrested, they too taught that the act of drawing could have sort of some sort of transcendent quality. The Germans developed these interesting ideas in Anschauung and Hauptform, and you know, perception and the key thing, the key, key visual uh, plastic commodities which an object might have. They taught these. A drawing, they said, was the soul of painting, but it was also the essence, absolute essence of understanding something. And it was these insights from these 19th century pedagogues which went to found, uh, which influenced the whole creation of the philosophy and the aesthetics of the, of, of the Bauhaus, which, of course, in a sense, was the ultimate expression of the academies which were founded in the 1720s. Um, But what the Bauhaus taught was that art and technology are not separate from design and craft, that they're all, in fact, the same thing. uh, The Bauhaus, the last academy, taught that art was not the business of epicene and ultramontane academics, um, but was everybody's concern. Art, in the 20th century, left the ateliers and the studios and the garrets and went out into the factories and the streets. Now, we're all living with that, which brings us exactly now to the Facebook generation, Google is now collective memory. I mean, Google, whatever you think of it, now represents exactly what classical learning once did. An Apple studio display, your big thing sits on your desk, uh, that's become the new artist's studio. Now, I think this is actually marvellous, but I I detect in the phrasing of the question and in some of what my predecessors said um, up here, I detect a sort of hint of intellectual snobbery in the actual phrasing of the question. Cannot be talked to the Facebook generation. I mean, there seems to be um, a suggestion that the Facebook generation is actually deficient in some respect. And I mean, the suggestion is that it's an infantilized generation deluded by a false celebration of, 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 of choice where all new media, whether they're DVD, games, social networks like Facebook, just offer a technologically sophisticated delivery of stupidity. 
you know, I actually don't agree at all. I think new media always create their own languages and their own disciplines. I mean, the despised video games, you know, they actually, what they actually represent is a sort of fully realized imaginary world, dense with complexity and layers of meaning. The spatial reasoning um, required to uh, get involved in Grand Theft Auto humbles the spatial reasoning of an architect like um, Palladio. The Facebook generation has, in fact, got to deal with a dizzying array of options. And I think in comparison, to be perfectly honest, the Royal Academy summer show seems tragically understimulating in comparison. Meanwhile, art, uh, if art is understood as the activity which newspapers review, has itself leapt, you know, the species barrier to become not the primary expression of visual awareness, but rather a new financial asset class. And this leaves us, you know, recently with the extremely unedifying um, spectacle of Damien Hirst shorting the market and offloading $200 million worth of middlebrow crapola on rich but clueless rubes. And, you know, I think it's interesting that Charles Sarchi's own forthcoming book on the subject uses the word artaholic in the, um, in the title, suggesting that this form of art, art as a new financial asset class, is something to do with dependency and debasement. And Sarchi, much as I admire him and his achievements, and I genuinely do, we've got to remember uh, that Charles Sarchi is as much concerned with market-making, image manipulation and branding as he is with connoisseurship or aesthetics, let alone, you know, the meaning of art. But, as I, but maybe, maybe our question is about, not about uh, art appreciation or art practice, but about the business of actually teaching creativity. Where do ideas come from? And I have to say that when it comes to creativity, this is the real deal breaker where education is involved. I mean, creativity absolutely cannot be taught. I mean, I love it. I mean, creativity is def by definition perverse. I love that thing um, Miles Davis said. Somebody asked Miles Davis to explain his creative method, and he says, well, I don't play what's there. I, I play what's not there. Um, I, you know, you, um, you can't sort of teach that sort of thing. Only the most unimaginative McKinseyite management consultant would think creativity could be measured and managed or taught. Uh, the whole point is surely that creativity is beyond legislation and organization and method. It's about theft, not about negotiation. Um, it's about anarchy, not about the curriculum. I love what Henry James once said about it. He said, we work in the dark, we do what we can, we give what we have. Our doubt is our passion, and our passion is our task. The rest is the madness of art. Of course, you cannot teach madness, uh, nor would it be sane to try. And anyway, the Facebook generation um, doesn't, I believe, need it. And as a last thought, I said about my, I'm sort of more impassioned about new technologies than the other speakers, I think. Um, some of them have questioned uh, the value and the content and the force of the digital age. I just leave you with a final thought from a famous Dutch computer engineer who said, asking whether machines can think is about as sensible as asking if a submarine can swim. Anyway, thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, Anthony, can I ask you to take up some of the points that uh, Stephen made? Because you spoke as though perhaps he might have understood you to despise the Facebook generation, and I know you like technology, but you did suggest that there was a thirst for a deeper experience that I understood would not be available via the digital world. I absolutely uh, love the development of tools that has happened. I mean, that's, in, in, in a sense, um, 
that the history of material culture is a history of the way that the body has been extended and perhaps been better calibrated in its relationship with the mind through technology. I think the issue for me is how you pull things out of the algorithms of digital thinking and make them uh, work for you in, in, in the palpable world. And certainly, you know, my, my work over the last uh, five years has changed enormously because of computing power. I couldn't have made, I couldn't have made um, Quantum Cloud, I don't know if you know that piece, but I, I think it's better than the Angel of the North, and it's, it's, a, it's a deconstructed monument, you might say, but it, it, it stands next to the Millennium Dome. You probably don't go there very often, but um, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's, in the, it's in the river, and it's made of about 3,000 elements that are, well, none of them cohere together in any orthogonal or classically readable way. The, the only way of conceiving of that and of analyzing whether or not it would stand up was because of the development of computer programs. And I, I'm, I'm now uh, working with somebody called Tristan Simmons, who's been working with me for about three years, who is continually writing new code to create ways of putting things together. Uh, well, he's made... He's, he's made one program that is called Blocker, we went on to Framer, he's now working on Bubbler, which is the most complex of his programs, and it's the way in which uh, bubble matrices form. They are, Lord Kelvin asked this question at the end of the 19th century, what is the most effective way of uh, enclosing space? And it is, obviously, you can, you can think about the bubble, the most fragile and extraordinary uh, natural structure. If you pack bubbles together, what you get is a bubble matrix, which is a tetrahedral node uh, structured matrix that can make an extraordinary range of polyhedra. I can see that you're really fascinated by this. Um, but anyway, I mean, the, the, I am now building something uh, that is 40 meters long, 20, 25 meters high, and 18 meters deep that I could not have conceived, let alone made the build program for, without, without uh, the technology that, that, that computers give me. And I, but, but for me, the issue is, how do you get this, how, how do you use this computing power to make things that could never have been made before? What about you? How do you use it? Well, I use it because I, it saves me a lot of time. You know, it does all the colouring in and things like that. You know, if I, if I say if I had a great big giant sort of colouring book, you know, and I wanted to colour it in, you can do it with click, click, click on the computer. It's really quick. I, I, well, I, I, just wanna, I just want to pick up what Steve was saying about he sort. I think he's romanticising creativity, which is very typical of people in suits. <laughs> I've had a lot of people. It's quite often people who aren't necessarily in the studio every day that kind of romanticise creativity, you know, and like you can't teach it. And when I work with students, you know, quite a lot of being an artist, I can teach them. It's about time management, people skills, you know, being taking care. That's what most of creativity is. It's you know, this kind of like things coming down from heaven, like shot a bolt of the mad person. It's just romantic tosh, a lot of it. You know, it's, it's, it's 
it's, yes, there are moments when I have ideas, you know, but they're kind of in the bath and they're kind of fairly slight compared with, you know, what I do most of the time. If I made a time-lapse film once of me making a pot and most of the time it was drudgery, you know, and I think most artists will reflect that in that and, and creativity comes out of doing stuff. It's not this kind of mad holy fool thing. No, but you spoke of a one-click attitude to art that was being generated by the availability of digital technology and that, that you spoke of that as though that was undesirable. Well, I think it, it doesn't necessarily encourage hard work. I think that's what it is because, you know, when I think of what is satisfying, the view from the top of the mountain you've climbed is always more satisfying. And so if you have... I mean, I'm sure there are people at this very minute doing this, the 21st century equivalent of the Sistine Chapel with a computer somewhere. You know, it's probably in Pixar Studio or somewhere like that. Um, and so I, it's, I'm not saying that there aren't people out there, but I think there is something about the feeling that just because you can do something with a computer doesn't make it interesting. It, it's a very, it instantly professionalises everything you do. So it looks like you've achieved something, but all you've done is a couple of clicks. Well, you'd, but you'd that. agree with that, Steve, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely, yeah, and I, I, I don't take any... Um, I mean, I think it's... Um, <coughs> I think the suits thing, I'm deeply stung by that. I, I, I think it's... Um, I think it's quite wrong for artists, so-called I mean, self, self-denominated artists, to assume that creativity is, 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 is the province of artists... Um, artists of in artists frocks. alone. Um, <laughs> artists in frocks. Um, but also, yes, of course I know that, uh, you know, discipline... You know, there are countless people who have said much the same thing. Edison believed, you know, 90, 95% perspiration, 5% inspiration. It is, it is method. I mean, Bach believed that, um, you know, Bach once said something like, and anybody could do what I've done, and they've worked as hard. Yeah, most artistic production is about, is about the mechanical stuff. But the point is, there is there's the 5% which isn't about the mechanical stuff. No one actually knows exactly uh, where ideas come from. Brahms certainly didn't. Brahms, I mean, Brahms was teach. very eloquent about this. I think you can teach you, students to recognise. I mean, what quote I often come back to is in Zen and the Art Motorcycle Maintenance, when he talks about having ideas, they're like furry creatures that come out of the forest, and they're all looking to see how you treat the first one. And often people aren't very good at knowing, at recognising their own creativity. Because, like, once they see that you're nice to the first one, all the others start coming. Because, you know, my ideas, when I have them, I kind of think, ooh, that's a bit trivial, a bit daft. But actually, they turn out to be, you know... They, they roll on to have great repercussions. No doubt, no doubt. The point is it's still difficult to... Um, it, it's very difficult to quantify that and to, te- and to teach it. I mean, you are just gifted. Let's face it. Camilla. That's all I wanted, really. <laughs> <laughs> Camilla, what about these furry creatures coming out of the forest that are ideas to be welcome? Do you think... Do you see that in your young, young people are able to do that? I, I think it's very important not to underestimate the intelligence of movement because some art happens because you think and you plan, but other art happens because your movement uh, generates new ideas and new connections. So I think there is a very kinetic importance to the function of art that mustn't be missed. And the other thing is that I think you mustn't confuse skill with the reverie of, of connectedness. The most exciting art happens when there are connections or links between unseemingly uh, unlinked things. And, you know, I think that accident of thought that is beyond skill is a very important part of it. Uh, a few questions now. Uh, there was someone, I think perhaps the V&A supposedly person, was just <laughs> trying to ask a question. Oh, hello. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for uh, looping the debate. My question was, 
do you think that um, art hasn't kept up with the generation? Uh, the, in the last 25 years, technology has taken off so much that if we went back to the mid-80s, you know, the fax machine was about all we had, and now suddenly there's just so much out there. And I just wondered whether in 10 years' time we will see that art has actually caught up with this generation. You know, even the question seems almost out of date. You know, should it be, can art be taught to the Twitter generation because Facebook's so yesterday now? And right. I just wondered uh, uh, what the thought of that. OK, has, got, has art got left behind? I, I think there's an obsession with novelty, you know, and it's a very 20th century idea that we have to sort of be new all the time and keep up. Why can't it just be good? You know, nowadays I don't necessarily describe myself as a contemporary artist. I'm, I'm just an artist because I sort of worry sometimes that you know, when people go to art galleries now, they just want novelty rather than good art. And, uh, you know, the fact that formally, you know, we have got a fantastic... Op- I mean, good art will come out of the internet in its own good time. In any culture, you just let it grow. I don't think we have to force it and be, oh, we're not up with the kids, you know. Just, it will happen. It will happen. The Facebook generation is people who use technology in the web, not necessarily an actual age. And my question, part one of my questions is, is it about art or is it about creativity? And does art put it too much on a pedestal? And I think what Anthony said was important, that after the age of 10, something happens, and the self-consciousness sets in. And if you're told you can't draw, you potentially eliminate creativity from your life. I think what the web does is encourage and become the catalyst for different tools to promote creativity. And isn't widespread creativity as important as art, making it more accessible to everyone to find their own self-expression? I think that at the back of your question is a fear and a hope. And the fear is that in some way that the tools that are put in front of us in the screen in some senses are an illusion. Or they kind of promise us things that maybe... A, a, a taking us somewhere, but taking us away from ourselves. And I think that is the, I mean, the, for, me, for me, this issue of Facebook and you can be my friend is that, in a sense, I, I have enough friends and I don't see them enough and I don't need any more. And I'm not sure that what the friendship that Facebook offers is actually any compensation for the lack that I already have in terms of not having enough contact with the friends that I have grown up with, as it were. So the issue is, what is, what is this tool doing in terms of its transformational power to our ability to relate on a, on a, on a real level? And what I, what I would say is exactly what Grayson has said, that actually body language, that thing, that thing of sharing space, time, the seasons, elements, whatever, they, they are really critical uh, to, I think, what art has to offer, which is, which is that it is, um, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a palpable extension of embodiment. That's so far as I'm concerned. I think that, that we, I, I don't rule out all of the extra capability that, the, that, that both the web and digital technology offers. I think it has to be, I mean, I'm, I'm saying what I said before, it has, to be, it has to be shared in a palpable way. And that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that we are actually dissolving something of our palpability in our fascination with the material, with, 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 with the kind of digital... Steve? I, I, think, I, think, I, I think that's um, absolutely right. I'm very glad Anthony hasn't entirely ruled out the, the significance of the greatest revolution in communications um, you know, in, um, in man's history. But um, 
I think it's a very important point. I mean, uh, no, I mean, I'm actually very, very, very sort of equivocal about, uh, about social networks, computing, anything, any, all new technologies. I think it's very important to, just to recognise that art's a fugitive activity and it, and, and it occupy, most effectively occupies different media at different times. Um, but the other thing, the very important point to recognise is that you know, clearly there's an extraordinary technological and communications revolution taking place now which is actually changing the way we actually think and behave. Um, but, but, but my point simply is um, that no new communications activity has ever completely uh, replaced its predecessor. I mean, I mean, printing didn't replace writing, radio didn't replace printing, television didn't replace radio, and, you know, uh, computing's not going to, uh, no matter how sophisticated it gets, isn't going to replace any of the other media. I mean, they, the whole business is cumulative. I just have this absolute conviction that, you know, that, that art, however defined, has now sort of gone somewhere else. And that uh, the, the new technologies will um, you know, create new disciplines, new skills. We're, we're running out of time now, so I've got two more questions, to, and then that's it. We've, people have got microphones, one here and one over there. I was just wondering if um, maybe the, the question shouldn't be how, whether art can be taught to the Facebook generation, whatever they are, but surely the people that are teaching art should be able to teach the skills of, and, and the uh, materials that are available through digital technology. So teaching coding or web-based work or you know, digital image manipulation, the teachers should be aware of those skills so that if artists that are up and coming want to use them, um, then they can. They're, they're not, they're sort of, um, the way that they can express themselves isn't limited by what the teachers are teaching them in relation to current materials, do you think we that's a teacher? Do we? Although I'm sure you lecture. Well, a lot of lecturers are using Facebook as actually a way of communicating to their students now, and, and, and doing seminars and things you? like that. Huh? Like, where are you? Well, maybe. Yeah, that's probably a most common plaintive cry. But, um, I think it's, it's quite. I think the trouble is, is that things are evolving so fast. It's like. You know, when, they, when the painting skills were established, it went on and on. But now, I mean, I, can't, I wouldn't want to be a lecturer who taught kind of uh, IT technology to art students because, I mean, you have to update yourself like, faster than a plumber every year, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. To, to right. keep up with the technology, it'd be a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, there, is a, there is a really serious question about how... I mean, the, when I was at school, I, I, I took a radio to a part. I made a radio that worked. There was a, there was a basic nature of those technologies that you could understand. I think that, that in, a, in a sense we are now all wedded to technologies where that is totally impossible. And the degree to which learning to write code and be able to manipulate it adequately to do something interesting, the degree to which that would take time away from, I think, your direct, your direct potential of expression, um, I think is a, real, is a real question. I would say that perhaps there is a in, in a sense, a, a responsibility to understand the technology that you're engaged in. I don't write code, but I use it a lot. Yeah, but uh, painters don't know how to make paintbrushes necessarily. No. Well, I would say, I would say that that's the right answer, that, that you have to find the things that you want to use and you have to decide for yourselves whether, whether, whether or not, uh, you know, how deeply you involve yourself in the, in the, in the, in the internal mechanics of a, of a technology. I think we much as I admire what Anthony and Grayson do. They, they, they um, do seem to be locked into, in, into sort of quaint practice. I think the whole thing about new technology is um, how it excites you know, creativity. The man who invented communications theory um, and the binary, um, you know, the whole binary mathematics said, I just had to invent the maths necessary to make this possible. 
mean, it's, that's, the, you know, that's the sort of level of creativity, and I've dropped my technology. Um, that's the level of creativity which I find absolutely fascinating. Now, one final question. Someone has a microphone at the back there. The Facebook generation, which I assume to just be a younger generation, it has sort of been almost referred to like we're separate or disattached or somehow alien. And that um, surely the human desire to express themselves, the human desire to document, to create visual, tangible works of art is not going to be destroyed by a social networking site. And what does the panel think of that? Well, I think it, it, um, it proves that Isaiah Berlin point that I was saying, that, that basically generations don't change as radically as the media might have us suppose. There's a hugely enduring side of human nature. There's that lovely, I'm going to misquote Philip Larkin's poem about church going, that people are always finding new reasons to be serious. Um, and I, it goes on and on through the generations. And, and whatever the superficial difference is, I do believe that uh, human nature is enduring, and that's why art speaks to us across generations. And also, I think, that posed in that question is this idea that, you know, that the young are this fount of creativity always. And yes, they are in some ways, but they're no, less, they're no more or less creative than older people. I mean, uh, I, I, I get a bit fed up to this idea that creativity is this young thing. When I, sometimes I want to say, there's also experiences and skills and, you know, in whatever field. There's probably a really old computer programmer that's at the cutting edge. Which is <laughs> <laughs> not true, it doesn't Mathematics. I mean, I mean, in some in some areas of human endeavour. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, studio art and novels, and possibly composing music. I mean, age seems to be a benefit, but uh, but not in mathematics. Well, <laughs> right. Well, I don't know. We don't. We aren't here to discuss mathematics. That's the next seminar. Um, I think we've had an extraordinary encounter tonight. We are in a space. We are relating to each other. I think we've all enjoyed it. Thank you very much to all my guests. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.